The following message was given by Demetrius White on Sunday, January 1st at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org. My name is Demetrius. If you didn't already know, maybe you're a visitor. I'm one of the pastors here. I have the uh, honor of being a pastor here, and I'm thankful for each and every last one of you. Uh, Happy New Year. I, I, I think that I'm ready. I've had about two cups of Blanchard's Dark Roast. So if I'm a little jittery up here, just don't mind me. It's coffee at work. It's not the unction. It's the coffee. Okay? But if you would be so kind to turn with me to Psalm, the 15th Psalm, Psalm chapter 15. Very short psalm. And I will read that for us in its entirety, and then I'll pray. Psalm 15, verse 1. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks the truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, and whose eyes a vile person is despised, but honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. I want to read that last statement again. And I want you to focus on it. I want you to ask yourself a question. Is this me? He who does these things shall never be moved. Father, we come to you. In the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I come to you, Lord, with his righteousness because I have none of my own. I am the most unworthy herald this morning for you. And because of that, I need your grace. Father, we are often distracted. We need the Holy Spirit to paint the truth of your word upon our hearts and empower us to obey it. Give me unction this morning that I may preach and speak and teach in the power and demonstration of your spirit. Help me today, Lord. Help us today, Lord. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. The new year brings with it new perspectives and new challenges. It is during this time people make resolutions to change something, add something, lose something, improve on something. And with extreme focus, we rush in to meet the challenge. We tell ourselves that we're going to lose weight. We're going to pick up a new skill, a new hobby, eat more vegetables. We go in with the intention to change. To only a month later, or for some of us, just a few days, we fall flat on our faces in disappointment. As Christians, we not only make normal resolutions like the ones I just mentioned, 
but we make spiritual resolutions hoping to make ourselves better before God, only to fall into disappointment and discouragement. As pastors, we wrestle with this as we counsel our flock. I received a message, an email from someone a while ago who struggled with assurance. They struggled with it to such an extent that they doubted their faith. When asked why, they said, I lack spirituality. I'm not like some of the people in my church. You see, I struggle with the disciplines. I struggle with prayer. I struggle with Bible reading. I am not doing enough. I'm not like this brother here. I said to this man, brother, I am sure that you aren't hearing from God. You are not receiving condemnation from the Father. For in Romans 8.1, it says that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I typed him back in this email. I said, here's what I see happening here, my friend. The grief you have is due to your looking at yourself for righteousness and not Christ alone. I said, you must be reminded of the old reformer, Martin Luther, when he looked at himself for assurance. He said this. He says, when I look at myself, I ask, how can I be saved? But when I look to Christ, I say, how can I not be saved? I said, it seems to me, just seems to me, my dear brother, that you have taken the good gifts of God, the means of grace, Bible reading, prayer, church gathering, and have turned them into laws to earn assurance before God. And this, my friend, is dangerous. Two things were happening with this brother. He looked to himself. And he used the means of grace as laws to earn righteousness and assurance before God. You may not be doing that to yourself. You may say, hey, Demetrius, I'm good with the disciplines, man. I pray every day. I read the Bible, man. I go to church. I serve. I'm out there at the tent handing out brochures, man. I'm fine with that. But it may be by a little bit of comparative analysis. Hey, hey, Demetrius, are you radical? I'm radical. Did you homeschool? I homeschool. Huh? You don't homeschool? Oh, what church do you go to? Do you wear the little thing? Do the women wear the little things on their head? Are their dresses long enough? And you do that not realizing that you aren't placing your faith in the gospel but yourself. You have faith in what is called, Michael Horton says, the gospel and not the gospel. A condemning mixture of law and gospel. And you try to take that before God. Let me ask you a question this morning. Why do you do that? Why do I do that? Why do we do this? Huh? Huh? This is just my opinion. You can take it for what it's worth. It may not be worth anything to you, but this is just my opinion. But I think it happens because deep down, we want to try to contribute something to our salvation. Deep down, we want to sing before the Father, something in my hands I bring glibly to the cross, I cling. 
You see, the gospel, the story about what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ, gives glory to God alone and saves us alone, and that sometimes makes us uncomfortable. You know what else I found out as I studied this passage, as I toiled through it? I had a bunch of commentaries out, man. I love commentaries, and I had a bunch of them, and I was comparing them and contrasting them. And you know what I found out? That this lessening of the gospel happens among scholars and commentators alike. I found that some commentators use Psalm 15 as a moral template to create a better you, a template to bolster your resolve, a key one could use to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps to earn their way before God and contribute to their salvation. We preachers do this too. We, we're, we're, we're guilty of this too. We see a passage like this and we say, hey, listen, you, oh man, I could get my congregation to strive, to toil. If we're really innovative, we will throw it in a little Greek for the word agonize. We will say, you must agonizomai to enter into the kingdom of God. But I'm here to disappoint you this morning. You see, because I'm not going to give you a moral template this morning. I'm not going to give you 10 steps to a better walk with Jesus. Oh, no. I'm not going to give you five immutable truths to a better life by following Psalm 15. Sorry to disappoint you this morning. The application section of this sermon is shot. But what I am here to offer you this morning is this. I'm here to offer you focus for the new year. I'm here to offer you a most satisfying perspective on how we as Christians are to live our lives now and throughout the new year. Psalm 15, if properly understood, will make us uncomfortable. Psalm 15, if properly grasped, will expose our hearts. Psalm 15, if apprehended, will remove all hope in ourselves and redirect our focus to gaze upon the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ alone, ushering us into everlasting joy. This year, as a pastor of this church, I want us to move from introspecting, introspection, looking at ourselves for righteousness, to looking to Christ alone for our righteousness, for assurance and joy and peace. And this will make the means of grace. When you go out this morning, you say, hey, listen, man, I got this uh, CBR thing here. This will make the means of grace, something like that, a joy. It will make Bible reading an opportunity to see and hear from Jesus. It will make church gatherings a smorgasbord, as Ted Sin likes to say, a smorgasbord of delight to feast upon Jesus. And prayer and invitation to come boldly to the throne of grace, to receive grace from the Lord Jesus Christ, and to enjoy communion with him instead of making that a law to earn your way with him. Psalm 15 calls us from self-righteousness to look at a righteousness that far exceeds our own. There are two points that I want to express to us, that I want to relay to us from this passage. Number one, 
we want to look at or we want to examine the pressing question of verse 1 of Psalm 15. The pressing question. Number two, we want to focus upon the alarming answer to this pressing question. Let us look at the first point, the pressing question in verse 1. In verse 1, the psalmist is asking this pressing question to see, or or he's, he's trying to get us to see or question ourselves to see who is the ideal worshiper. Who is the man or woman who can come into the presence of God and fellowship with him? Who is the one who can truly glorify God and enjoy him forever? David is not merely concerned with who may have an occasional audience with God, but he is concerned with who may have a permanent residence and commune with God forever. This is seen in his question. Who may sojourn in your tent? David asks the same question in greater proportions. Who may dwell on your holy hill? This concept of God living on a holy hill is a major theme of the Old Testament. In Genesis, the elevated location of the Garden of Eden is indicated by the fact that a single river flows down from it before being divided into four distinct rivers. This description implies that Eden occupied a raised or highly exalted position in the middle of the world from which all life flowed. Keeping with this logic, keeping with this position, Ezekiel describes Eden as both the garden of God and the holy mountain of God in Ezekiel 28, 13 through 16. This was God's sacred space. By asking this question, David is saying, or he wants to know, who shall fellowship with you now, Lord, and who shall come into your sacred space, heaven, and enjoy you forever? You know, I wrestled with this psalm. I toiled with it for weeks. And I asked, what was David thinking? What was he thinking when he wrote this? What did he see? What did he know? How did he feel? Maybe David thought of the last chapter of Exodus. When God's presence descended upon the tabernacle in such glory that no one could approach it. Not even Moses, Exodus 40 verse 35 says, he was not welcome to enter into fellowship with God. Too holy. Maybe the instructions to the priest rang within the ears of David and he heard only the high priest can come into the tabernacle, the holy of holies, once a year, not without blood. Leviticus 16. Maybe he remembered as he danced to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem and Uzzah saw the Ark leaning the throne of God, the representation of the throne, he put his hand upon it and God struck him dead. And it says that David at that moment became afraid of God. Maybe this is what moved David to say, who shall ascend the holy hill of God? Maybe, maybe not. But I do know this one thing about David. He knew that God is holy and that no one can waltz into his presence Lightly. 
No one can walk in where angels fear to tread. Who shall sojourn in the holy hill of God and dwell with him forever? You would think David here, David would offer us some comfort. You would think David says, well, I'm going to give you five steps on how to enter. No, David is not offering us comfort here. He's not giving us a comforting answer. You know, when my buddy Shelby here, Pastor Shelby, selecting songs. Sure, he does this. He's selecting songs. He may pick out a song that, 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 that talks about our sin and the depravity and, and natural evil, the natural evil in the world, and it's heavy, isn't it? But that's on purpose. That's on purpose. And this is why it's on purpose, because he's trying to get you to see and abandon all hope in yourself and ask the question, who shall ascend the holy hill of God with these sins? This is why David wrote this psalm. He wrote this psalm so you and I would abandon all hope in ourselves and look to another for righteousness. How do I know this? Because of verses 2 through 5, our second point, the alarming answer. He gives us the alarming answer to the pressing question of verse 1. There are several observations I want to make here about verses 2 through 5. There are several observations. Number one... I want you to notice the first observation is found in the qualifications needed to enter into the presence of God. David lists 10 qualifications for the man or woman in whom God delights. God, David gives 10 qualifications that one must have to enter into the presence of God and enjoy him. The first one is he is blameless, verse 2. The second, he does what is right, verse 2. The third, he speaks the truth in his heart, verse 2. The fourth, he does not slander, verse 3. The fifth, he does no evil to his neighbor or takes up a reproach against his friend, verse 3. Number six, He does not take joy in the evil of mankind, verse 4. Number 7, he honors the godly. Number 8, he keeps the word, or he keeps his word, verse 4. He deals honestly with his money, verse 5. Number 10, he does not take a bribe, verse 5. Before us are not 10 steps to be obtained, but requirements that must be maintained in order to dwell with God. Here's my second observation here. The second and alarming observation about this text. These qualifications for you and I aren't graded on the curve. You know that, right? Huh? You know, some of us come to God's law and we say, oh, man, you know, this, <laughs> here we go. All I got to do is, man, do these 10 things and I'm good. This isn't on the curve. What do I mean by that? I want you to notice that David's not giving wiggle room. He's not giving second chances. The Holy Spirit through David is not giving second chances in Psalm 15. He's not making concessions. Notice the text does not say he who does this 1%, 5%, 30%, 99.99% of the time may dwell with God. What the psalm is teaching us is that if you want to dwell with God you, and have any hope of dwelling with him, you must keep this 
100% of the time, 365 days a year without fail. You must keep the qualifications of this law perfectly and perpetually. David is speaking about the perfect law-abiding man. Scholar J.A. Montier, looking and commenting on this text, quotes Hebrews 12:14, And he says, Psalm 15, here is the holiness without which no one will see God. No, we have some people in the pulpit that, that will cry out that verse, right? Hey, without holiness, you shall not see God. That is true. But not your holiness. The holiness of someone else. Our holiness is frail. It's broken. Our righteousness cannot obtain God's favor. The Psalm 15 man is perfect in thought, word, Indeed, he's perfect indeed. In verse 2, he walks blamelessly. He is perfect in thought. He speaks the truth in his heart. The word heart there is a symbol of our will, mind, and emotions. He is perfect in thought. This man is perfect in word. He does everything that he says, verse 2. It is this man that will enjoy sweet fellowship with God, and it is this man who shall never be moved. Let me ask you a question. How are you doing with this? How am I doing with this this morning? And you? Well, on God's holy hill? How much Bible reading do you need to do to dwell on God's holy hill? How often do you have to pray? Huh? How are you doing this morning with Psalm 15? Imagine yourself going on the Sabbath day, you come in with your friends, come in with Jacob and Isaiah, you're going to the Sabbath service. You sit down, they strike up the symbol, the worship leader, the, the, the maestro, the minstrel, strikes up the song, and he sings Psalm 15. You open up, you say, okay, let's sing. Oh, Lord, who shall sojourn in your holy hill? This is when stuff hits the fan. This is when stuff hits the fan. Verse 2, he who is blameless. Oh, whoa. <laughs> he who is blameless and does what is right. It starts getting real, really fast. Because your self-righteousness hits the fan and there's a mess everywhere. Because you aren't blameless. You don't keep your word. You and I, we are not the song. 15, man or woman. And we sing this and we say to ourselves, this man, as David has written down, just who can? 
dwell in the presence of God. This psalm is left unanswered for centuries. It's left unfulfilled. It seems to roll through time like a dark specter crying out to all of humanity, who shall ascend the holy hill of God? Who shall fulfill these requirements? Who shall do this and fellowship with God without rival, without one effort, without one noble challenge? No one says a word and answers Psalm 15. For centuries, many have come, gone, lived, died. No one's worthy. To meet the requirements. John felt this type of unworthiness in Revelation chapter 5. He's taken up to heaven. He sees the throne room of God. An angel cries out in a booming voice. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who is worthy? What he's saying in a sense, is who is worthy to initiate God's plan to bring about everlasting righteousness and eradicate evil? John says, in a sense, there's a scramble. We looked around everywhere. We looked in heaven. We looked in the earth. We even looked under the earth. And John said we could find no one, and therefore I wept. And an elder walks up to him from his throne that God had given him. He walks up to John and he says, don't do that. Weep not. There is one. It's like he was putting his arm around John and he said, look, look over there. There's one. See him? He's coming. The lion from the tribe of Judah, he who has conquered. Daniel chapter 7 paints this scene out in glory because it says that Jesus walks in, the Son of Man comes from clouds of glory. He walks into the throne room of God, the Ancient of Days, and he takes the authority, the scroll from God's hand, and he rules forever. It is this same person, Jesus, who comes from eternity, darkens the doorstep of time. He hears Psalm 15, who shall ascend the holy hill of God and meet these requirements. And with extreme confidence, he says, I can and I will. He says, and this is how I will do it. I will keep the law of God in thought, word, and deed. Personally, perfectly, perpetually. I will not do this for myself, but for everyone who will ever trust in me, rest in me, believe in me. Matthew 1, 21. My perfect life, my perfect law keeping will be credited to them as righteousness. I will take the infinite wrath of God in, for them and subdue it. 
by my infinite worth or the infinite worth of my sacrifice for them. I will take their curse and I will turn it into a blessing. When I die, they will die with me. In my death, I will eradicate sin and defang death. When I am buried, they will be buried with me, showing that their sin has been laid to rest, never to rise again to speak against them. I will put their sin out of my sight. My father and I will never remember their sins again because my work will be so sufficient. When I am resurrected, they will be resurrected with me to walk in the newness of life. When I ascend, they will ascend with me and they will be seated right there on the throne with me far above all principality, power and might, Ephesians 2, 6. You know, when I got to Ephesians 2, 6, I sat in my office at home my wife will tell you, I am not kidding about this. I cried like a baby. I was sprawled out on the floor crying like a baby. And, and she knows me. I'm not a man giving over, giving over to much emotion or crying, except in preaching. Because this is really good news. How could you be quiet about this, especially in the pulpit? I cried. And I tried to go back and, and, and study the text again, and I wept again. And all I could say was, who does stuff like this? Huh? Behold the answer to Psalm 15. Jesus Christ. It is he who meets the requirements of Psalm 15. Why does this matter for you today, believer? You who tremble over your sin, it matters greatly. Because he who knew no sin became sin for you, that you might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 you have gone from guilt to grace to gratitude. Now you are to live your life from the power of gratitude. Now you are to go into the new year with disciplines, whatever you want to call them, out of gratitude, not out of law, because Christ has already kept the law for you and fulfilled it. Now you can go to the word and see and hear from Christ and savor him. And enjoy him. What about you? You don't believe today. Say to yourself, I, I'm not a believer. Well, I'm going to tell you what. This is the worst news that you could ever hear. Psalm 15 is the worst news you could ever hear for yourself. Well, I don't believe it. Well, I may not believe the sun's shining outside, but that doesn't change the fact that the sun is shining. The sun's going to still shine whether I believe it or not. And this truth is going to reign supreme whether you believe it or not. You will stand before Christ. 
And I can imagine this is what's going to happen as Jesus Christ comes and all of creation, Revelation 20, rolls itself back out of fear for him and you're left standing alone before him. It will be at that time that you will say to yourself, this is what I would have had to been if I were to earn my salvation by myself. I would have to have been exactly like that man seated upon that great white throne. And you can't meet that qualification. But the man who's coming on that great white throne, today I'm standing here as his ambassador. And I'm telling you, he has grace for you. And he is calling you to come to him. He's not calling you to do anything. He's done everything. He's calling you to trust in him. He's calling you to rest in him. He's calling you to believe in him. That's it. He will do the rest. He's done it. And he will do the rest through his spirit to sanctify you, to bring you safely home to himself. Will you come to him? Father, we thank you for what Jesus has done. We thank you that he is perfect. Not only is he perfect, but he, as a gift of grace, gives us his perfect righteousness so that we too could dwell on God's holy hill for all of eternity and enjoy him. We thank you for this, Lord. We pray that throughout the week that you would bring these truths to our hearts and soothe our guilty consciences. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You've been listening to a message by Demetrius White given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org.